that's where the opportunity is. The opportunity is when everybody else says it's impossible, that's when the really big opportunity is there. Hello and welcome to The Ascent. I'm Guy Gillam, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. So I'm talking to some of the tech world's most inspiring founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs. Discovering what drives them, what keeps them awake at night and what they've learned along the way that can help us in our own lives too. In this episode, I'm joined by Bobby Healy, CEO and founder of MANA and a highly valued member of the Tenzing Entrepreneurs panel. Like many of my guests, Bobby discovered a love of coding as a teenager, and before he was 18, he was writing video games for Nintendo. Whilst that was his first venture, it was reasonably short-lived, and via the south of France, Bobby found his way to the emerging travel tech sector with Amadeus. A few contacts later, and still in his early 20s, Bobby headed out to Mexico City, where he founded Eland, a middleware platform connecting airlines' infantry to numerous travel booking systems. 12 years later, significantly profitable, and with over 50 staff, Bobby sold the business to a much larger travel technology provider. On his return to Dublin, he chanced upon a business with bags of potential, and over the next 15 years, transformed the family-run physical car rental operation into CarTrawler, the world's biggest B2B travel technology platform. Bobby exited CarTrawler during the pandemic to focus on MANA, his potentially game-changing drone delivery startup, which I think you're going to love hearing about. Enjoy. Bobby, hello. How are you? Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start with the news of the day. So tell me about MANA. Tell me about how you came across the idea and where we are today. Well, the full name is MANA Drone Delivery. So we design and build miniature aircraft, well, reasonably large drones that carry lightweight, low-value cargo between stores, restaurants, coffee shops, supermarkets, pharmacies, directly from those stores to consumers' backs and front gardens across suburbia. We have an app. You order anything you want on the app, and the product will arrive in about five minutes, delivered on the ground to your lawn. So that sounds like proper slick pitch but what was the um, first moment when you actually thought this might be something there was a kind of a culmination of moments I'm a techie right a software guy curious mind and learning about drones drone hardware and software and the capabilities that they had and then honestly I'm sitting in the suburbs of Dublin so about four or five miles outside of Dublin city centre and it's next to impossible to get a delivery of a bag of chips or anything for that matter to my house even though there's 25,000 people in the town so I'm sitting at my back garden with a couple of glasses of wine getting the munchies love a bag of chips as you do <laughs> the once a month treat of a Friday night and uh, you know I was just thinking you know what these drones I could easily modify one of these drones to fly to my local chipper and pick up a bag of chips and bring it back and that's what I did but like obviously a hobby project to do that but then I went down to my local chippers and had a chat with them noticed there's a big guy sitting outside in a diesel car he keeps the engine running while he's sitting outside and he's the delivery guy and he'll do six or seven deliveries a night over four or five hours and you know the optimist in me says how crazy is that that there's a human being and a vehicle producing co2 using the roads 
doing this job that this little drone that I have in my hand could do faster, cheaper, quieter, safer, greener. That that was it. That was the crux of it. That was just a, like a consumer drone that you could buy on Amazon. Yeah. Wow. It was a DJI Mavic Air. So you buy one for 500 quid. It'll fly on its own without cargo. It'll fly about six kilometers round trip and it's a very stable device. If you attach a bag of chips to it, it won't fly as far. Uh, but it would fly a two or three kilometer round trip. Now, you'd never use a drone like that in real life because it's not safe. Mm. It's not, it doesn't have all the redundancy and the mission critical stuff that you'd need to fly over populated areas. But in terms of the raw tech and the capabilities of the state of the art tech, which is what DJI are, it was very clear to me that it was eminently doable. And to be honest which I was surprised that nobody else was doing it already. And so when did you transition from curiosity to okay, this is my commitment. Yeah. When did you go, this is time to set up a proper business here and do a business plan? There was two concurrent things. One was, I won't call it a business plan, I would call it more like the cunning plan. <laughs> I use Evernote to record my thoughts and I would slowly add more and more ideas and challenges and problems and opportunities. And there was a mixture of technology, business and strategy all in there. And I evolved that over... I don't know, three or four months. And at the same time, I was educating myself on what are the skill sets required? What kind of a team do I need to do this? What type of technology people? What kind of technologies? How do you go about, you know, producing an aviation grade aircraft? And who would I need to hire? And then at the same time, I needed to say, well, okay, there must be something in the way of me doing this. And I figured pretty quickly that it's the aviation regulator. So ultimately, you're flying in, even though it's unoccupied airspace, below 500 feet. The aviation regulator is responsible for it. So that felt like an existential barrier to entry. And that's where my network was useful to me. And, you know, I had previous investors in, in other businesses that were in the aviation community and they were able to get me a good solid contact with the Irish regulator and so I went to lunch and I said look you know supposing there was a technology team in Dublin that wanted to build something with drones and do a drone delivery system how would that fit in with your thinking and would that ever fly excuse the pun <laughs> and to my delight it was very much you know Bobby we've been wondering when someone would come through the door with such a plan there's certainly already evolving regulations in Europe specifically to support this and we the IAA would definitely support it and we would like to help out in any way we can and Ford went three years later which is where I am now the IAA the Aviation Authority are a key part of our success they've been amazingly helpful at moving us forward and giving us the permissions we need there's still a question of timing and will the regulations ever happen will the airspace ever be open it's not my question I have no doubt whatsoever about the timing but certainly when I'm out raising finance or I'm talking to people about it most and particularly in, in the UK of all markets and USA would be the most conservative of all markets so if you were in the USA or if you're in the UK evaluating it you'd come up with a pretty negative conclusion about timing well you know yeah you would and like again that's where the opportunity is the opportunity is when everybody else says it's impossible that's when the really big opportunity is there you self-funded initially yeah, so I funded it for the first year. First of all, I, I went around to a bunch of engineering companies that were building what I would call enterprise drones and, you know, asked them what's involved in building it and getting costs and stuff like that. And so I knew roughly the capital cost of a drone and, and what goes into it. And then I hired a team, I found a team in Wales. They were what I would call academics, hobbyists, you know, guys that would definitely get me a prototype aircraft in six to 12 months. 
and I hired them and I, you know, it was very clear very early on that this is not a business that you fund on your own. <laughs> you know, we're burning now a million a month. That burn's going to keep on increasing. So there's no point trying to stretch it and keep most of the company, any of that stuff. You straight away need to get on the institutional ladder. So after about a year of funding it, I raised a seed round to kind of almost give us what I would call an endorsement, saying that we weren't crazy. I wasn't building, you know, a rocket or anything like that, that there was people that believed the timing was right and that the actual thing was viable. And I've always believed, I've never had any doubt about it. My conviction gets better and better, stronger and stronger over time. But I found it very difficult to raise my first seed round. Mm. And that's because everyone did think I was crazy. They had question marks over the tech, they had question marks over the unit economics, they have question marks over regulatory. And so it was such a high risk, and it still is, you know, rather a high risk business. So it's not the business for a private person to finance the whole way through. It never work. Who was the first person that gave you that conviction in terms of funding that you weren't just a mad chippy delivery boy? Yeah, well, there's the thing. I mean, you know me long enough. You know, I have a track record. I've built companies before and have exits. And that. so I've got a bit of credibility, particularly in the Irish market. And even then, it was really difficult to convince people. Mm. But the first one was a firm called FFVC, Founder Friendly VC in New York. Mm. And they led a $2.5 million seed round. And, you know, in VC, the first thing you have to do is price your round. You need that lead investor to actually price it. Yeah. And then there's a stampede. You know, once someone prices the round, everyone wants to get involved then because there's this FOMO thing and there's this, oh, well, it must be okay if somebody else says it's okay. And what happened was the seed round was oversubscribed. So I ran a second seed round a couple of months later. So we ended up raising over about five and a half million in quick succession, which it still didn't exactly let us take the brakes off, but it gave us about an 18-month runway where we were really able to go for it. And you did the fundraising yourself, effectively. Yeah, that's the thing about VC, unlike private equity, is they don't like you rocking up with a banker or Mm. an advisor or any of that stuff. They kind of question you a little bit if you're not the guy sitting at the table or on the Zoom meetings. What they're expecting is a story and a storyteller with it and all of the passion that goes with a startup, they don't care about the sobering things around business that PE would consider. And they're highly suspicious. In fact, it's a massive signal to them if you use an advisor, particularly for the first, say, the Series Seed and A rounds, mm. it has to be the founder yeah. and the founding team. So the unit economics, I'm like fascinated in that. So you're comparing it to what the unit economics of like a delivery driver? Yeah, well, so there's two ways to look at us as, as why we disrupt. The first one is simple unit economics. So today, in, in the UK, it costs just less than £5 sterling to operate a road-based delivery. That translates in the US to between 6 and $9 per delivery, depending on whether it's a short-range New York delivery or a suburbia somewhere. But yeah. So just have the number 6 or $7 in your head. Yeah. And by the time the consumer pays for it, it'll be a little bit more because of the tip. Our economics are less than $1 per delivery at scale. So we're nearly an order of magnitude cheaper to operate than a human-based equivalent. And we did a deal with Just Eat where we can say, look, we'll do the delivery. That delivery cost is our revenue now, and and you end up with a three-minute delivery service that consumers love. It's faster. Things are hot. So the product experience is way better, and the product quality is way better. But the big thing that we change... The real prize here is that we can efficiently and at scale move things around communities on behalf of businesses and consumers. 
What does that translate to? It means that coffee delivery is actually a thing now. Guinness delivery is actually a thing now. So more than half our orders are for cappuccinos and lattes. Amazing. You know, so people order, they get a coffee four or five minutes maximum later. Like our, our flight time in our new town is two minutes, 45 seconds, maximum flight time outbound. So suddenly coffee delivery becomes viable and it's the most frequently purchased perishable thing by human beings anywhere in the world. So you, you see a world where it's conceivable that we're creating new categories that never existed before and increasing demand as a result. And I love this case, you know, the, the local bookshop that we work with now has a better delivery product than Amazon has mm. to its catchment area. Yeah. So we give those guys 30 to 40 square kilometer catchment area within three minutes online service. Mm. That is unbelievable quality of service that protects those small local businesses and communities from the big giant killer that is Amazon. So there's all sorts of other benefits to it that communities see beyond just the commercials. And the regulation, so if I recall, aren't you basically held to the same standards as uh, civil aviation aircraft? Yeah, higher. So we have to have mitigate both ground risk, where we hit the ground, and air risk, mm. where we collide with other objects in the air. And you couldn't pick a more difficult bloody business to operate because you're, you're not just building hardware, which anyone will tell you, don't touch it, it's a pain in the ass, don't invest in a hardware business. But this hardware flies, and it's regulated. Mm. And, you know, on one hand, regulation makes it incredibly difficult. But on the other hand, obviously, it protects the consumers that we fly over. But more importantly, it protects us from bad operators in the space that come in like cowboys, yeah. create a terrible reputation for the whole industry and force legislators to ban us. Right. So we won't be allowed to fly unless we're safe. And that applies to everyone else, which means we have a two to three year head start on anyone else that tries to start doing what we're doing. How does the cargo come out of the hold and how's that delivered? Yeah, so we fly to your house at between 50 to 80 metres. When we arrive, we then descend between 15 and 25 metres. And then as we're descending, we scan with a LIDAR. So we look for a flat space of two metre diameter. And when we're happy with that and it's clear, yeah. we open the cargo bay doors and we winch the product down to the ground using a, a tether. And that takes about, depending on the altitude, six to ten seconds from the time it leaves the aircraft to when it lands on the ground. And how do you untether it? So we have two systems. One is it's just a biodegradable linen thread that we leave behind. So you get a big, long thread with your bag of whatever it is that we just delivered. Mm. And then the second system is a retractable winch. And that winch has an intelligent hook on the end. And that hook is measuring how close it is to the ground and tilts. And when the bag touches the ground, the hook is mechanical. So it unlatches itself and it goes back up into the aircraft. Oh, wow. We like that system, even though... Usually complexity is very bad in engineering because everything that fails will fail. But the reason we like that is it enables us to travel first to a vendor to pick up the product and then onwards to mm. a customer rather than fly directly from the vendor's store. Oh, that's interesting. That's new, is it? It's part of the new aircraft yeah. and also bigger cargo. So we have 50% more cargo capacity now in the aircraft, oh. which we wanted to really address the single basket grocery market as well. So we went a little bit bigger. Mm. And similarly for the retractable winch, we wanted to get into a system where we could think about it. We could roll out COVID tests and collect the samples, things like that. Mm. But, but more importantly, we could roll out to 
you know, a centralized system where we actually fly to, to vendors, pick up the product and then move on. So it just increased the efficiency of any given town that we operate in. I guess looking back and to the extent you can look forward, what are the key kind of proof points that you're mm. looking to hit? Yeah, um, so the key KPIs are how many deliveries can you do per hour? We're currently at six deliveries per hour per aircraft. And so we, we've kind of optimized that now and we're very happy with it. And then the other KPI really is is kind of overall volume per day. We want to be able to show that we can meet the demands of the peaks across the week. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, those four hours of the evening for takeaway for the high volume restaurants, about 400 to 500 deliveries a day done flawlessly. And when we have half a million flights on the clock, I think we can call it is success and we can say that we're we're ready to scale the business and that comes probably end of 22 early 23 wow it's amazing so you're back in the ceo role here yeah we'll unpack that a little bit later but you've normally relished the cto role talk me through that and how you're finding the differences we're 85 people in the company now, so it's a tiny company, so there isn't much required from a leadership or management perspective, mm-hmm. but I, I no longer need to write the code. I have a super, incredibly strong team that were with me before in Cartroller and other businesses, so you know the team are easy to lead, let's just put it that way. Yeah. So it's not a real CEO job, but like CEOs make, make you up your title anyway, I think. So my real role is definitely tech, product strategy, leadership, and then the, the raising the money, you know, being passionate about the mission, communicating that to future investors. And that has a certain timeline, right, to where we get to what I would call almost escape velocity when the business is producing cash and we start to see clearly what the operating model looks like, what the business model looks like. And then we move to scaling if it's successful. Once we get to readiness for scale and we have scale manufacturing in place, then we're going to be going to every single suburb in every single market that lets us as quickly as we can. So imagine Uber, but much bigger and much faster, involving hardware as well. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be an incredibly difficult, but very clear and kind of almost well-defined challenge. It's just a matter of raising enough capital and hiring enough great people in each of the markets to take the playbook and roll the playbook out. So I, I think I can lead that. I think it's very left brain type of business to scale and build. So yeah. it, again, like the, the, the word CEO, I always think of a CEO, someone who always wears suits and is very polished <laughs> and pro- probably has a management and finance background. Yeah. I'm definitely on the spectrum side, left brain technical, <laughs> but I think that's actually what's needed for this business. Basically, three years it's home run or bust, is it? Yeah, totally. It, it's very binary. We're going to be gigantic in three years and or we're going to be zero in three years. Mm. There's a third option now, which I hadn't seen before. So there is the acquisition option, probably, but that doesn't interest me at all. I want to take the business public as quickly as we can. Mm. It's a type of business that connects so well with the public that you. Yes. it's a hugely prominent business. And as you start to roll out, the fever, I believe, will catch a hold. And so there is an opportunity for us to really light a fuse over the next 18 months that could get us public um, pretty soon after. So tell me about your first entrepreneurial memory that you had when growing up. And so it's not very entrepreneurial. <laughs> it was the, the, taking the decision. I was writing video games for Nintendo through an Irish company that had the contracts to write them. 
And myself and three of my programming buddies decided, you know what, why are we earning salaries when we we're doing all of the work? Let's start our own video games company, which we did. We got a contract to build a couple of games from a US company and we thought we'd more money than we could ever dream of. And we, we went yeah. bust about 12 months later because <laughs> we didn't know what cash flow meant. We didn't know what planning meant. And by the time it came time to pay the salaries in a December, we didn't have any contracts lined up and, you know, ridiculous. I think I was 18 years old then. Wow. And it was a very positive experience. And I, and I got the bug there for sure. When I started my next business, I took nearly a three-year, what I would call a sojourn in the south of France, working for a tech <laughs> company down there. You know, I was contract rate, loads of money, and did no good work and learned nothing. But, you know, through that, I met some acquaintances, and I saw that there was an opportunity. In the company I was working for, they did what I would consider a terrible product for a huge market and they were almost a duopoly at the time across the world in, in travel technology and so I said I'm going to build that and, and I got two customers in Mexico City mm. two local airlines there and I set up a company to do that and I moved to Mexico City and I built that company and you know I won't bore everyone to death but it took me 12 years to grow that company and finally exited I did exit via trade sale to, to multinational and that was, again, a brilliant experience. Like we grew it to, I think it was $15 million uh, top line with a 7 million EBITDA. It was an unreal business, yeah. but a terrible business because we weren't growing it. It was definitely a lifestyle business. And yeah. I'm not proud of the fact that I should have scaled it much more. I should have taken on capital, should have brought in management. It should have done all these things. And so while it was a good success for me, it was, you know, if I ran it again, it, it would be, be very different, very different, yeah. very much, very much so. But it would be, still be just as boring compared to what I'm doing now. Was that Amadeus you were working for in the south of France? Yeah, it was. GS's Global Distribution Systems, there's only two in place at the time? Well, there was, there was Amadeus and Sabre, and yeah. they were the guys on the block. They still are. But you say you might not have been learning anything, but I think you probably have a damn good time in the south of France. So jumping from south of France to Mexico, what were you running from? <laughs> Yeah, I know. There was definitely a girlfriend I needed to get away from in France. No, I mean, it was just lady luck, really. I, I had this idea through acquaintances I got to meet. Basically, there was a joint venture between American Airlines, actually Sabre as well, mm. and a local Mexican, what I would call now a cartel, right, yeah. to build a GDS for Latin America. That was the plan. It was called Certel. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Americans put a load of money into it, and the Mexicans ran it recipe for disaster and I got the contract to build the software and like then I was 21 years old and I didn't know what the hell I was doing but I says this is a contract <laughs> you know this will pay my way it's it's a risk right but yeah you know, it's an adventure too so I went to Mexico I lived in a hotel for for nine months I wrote the software in the hotel room and it worked it was great great piece of software but of course the whole thing went belly up, nobody paid the bills, mm. and it was a disaster. And then again, Lady Luck, I happened to meet again through acquaintances, some of the senior leadership team for American Express Travel in Mexico. And they thought that, well, you know, it was kind of a shoehorn. It was almost, you know, why can't we use this for our travel systems and our, you know, mix our card systems, and our travel systems. Yeah. And of course, you know, in, in my shoes, everything looks like a yeah, nail when you possible. have a hammer, right? Mm. So we did a deal 
and they started paying my bills and and ultimately I signed a huge contract with American Express worldwide for that software which was the springboard to then sign IBM and IBM mm. then badged the product under their name and they had a travel technology division it was almost jumping from one stone to another bigger stone to another even bigger stone as I crossed the river yeah but the deal with American Express was absolutely fundamental and that that may or may not have happened and that's the thing with luck right if that deal hadn't have happened it would have been the end of that business but the deal did happen and I maximized that to my advantage and and built a pretty good company from it and did you sell it to IBM in the end no they were in the race all right but I sold it to CETA SITA that's a it's an airport technology business culturally it was a car crash. You know, I got there, I wanted to change the world, I wanted to grow at a rate of knots, mm. and you know, there's nothing wrong. I like, see they're a brilliant company, well-managed company, but just, you know, it was like I was on a different planet, and, and I didn't like mm. being there, and I moved on as soon as I could. I had a two-year lockup, and I, I worked it through, and I did a good job and all that stuff, but it was wasted two years of my life. And so you came back to... Dublin. I came back to Dublin in 96, so 28, 29 when I came back to Dublin. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, Dublin was booming then. And then around that time, I started to say, look, you know, I'll, I'll reach out to my contacts and say, any good ideas, any teams I can, you know, help dip in. I, I didn't know if I wanted to be an investor or an operator or, or any of these things. And I was introduced to the Turley brothers that were the founders of a car rental company actual physical cars and I I went out to meet them and he said you know these guys need a tech guy you know they're car rental guys but they need a tech guy they were definitely car rent they were car rental families since the 60s and they had built a website that sold or rented their own cars and and they they decided geez you know you can make money out of renting cars online and I went in and I met them and I remember instantly seeing an idea that was basically, you know what, car rental is awful, right? It's horrible business. It's a tough business, let's say. You can yeah. make money, but it's not it's not great. Low margin. Yeah. yeah. And then I had in my back pocket 120 airline customers that I had sold software to from my last business, right? Relationships with many of them and some of the world's largest airlines that knew me, that trusted me. And I knew that their strategies were, you know, airline airlines were starting to get rid of distribution through travel agencies. They were all building websites to sell their tickets directly to customers. And they were doing okay with that. The good airlines were 20% sales online direct. The bad ones were 3%. But they were all growing, right? And so they were generating these millions of customer transactions online. Average order value of two or 300 quid. So customers have loaded their credit card. They're trusting this site with their credit card, which was very rare online in, back then. Mm. And this was 2005. And I'm saying, you know what? There's this giant customer base that have card in hand. You know, what they need to be selling is ancillary products that are 100% to the bottom line. Mm. And those products are hotel, car, and insurance. And the guys, the Turley Brothers had a contract with Uh, It was actually Holiday Autos, a UK-based car broker, to resell their online contracts across Europe. And I said, look, you know, I can build a SaaS middleware that would aggregate that content and drop it in onto the website, instantly have live car availability and booking. And to me, that was something I could build in six months. And there was nobody doing it. No one understood that there was an opportunity to provide a B2B 
out of the box, you know, retailing platform for airlines that would just add extra money to their bottom line for no effort. And that's what it, that's what I says. I want to come on board, and I actually bought a stake in the business from the Turleys, a minority stake, and pretty much took it over myself and another guy, Mike McGurty, ran the business for. I would say 14, nearly 15 years. Mm. It was no longer obviously car rental. It was nothing of the sort. It was it was an enterprise system for airlines. So you bought the brothers out effectively four or five years later. Yeah, we did. We did a private equity deal in 2010. So, that's why with ECI Partners, and we did a leverage buyout, brought in some debt, and the Turley stayed on, but they sold a stake to ECI. Yeah, stayed on, and then three years later, we did the same again, but this time uh, the Turleys fully exited the business, and everyone was happy. BC Partners came in, you know, bought it from ECI, but you know, bought majority control from ECI. The Turleys departed. Myself and Mike stayed on mm. me and mike were a great partnership i was cto he was kind of cfo and then he became ceo and i stayed cto right it was a brilliant team because all of my weaknesses he covered well yeah <laughs> and i couldn't manage my way out of a paper bag as he used to say and you know telling the story being the visionary being the evangelist which this type of business needs i'm good at that so it's really interesting for founders and sort of p ceos where it just gets naturally held up on a pedestal as being the most important job yeah but when you found a business you're the ceo because you're the first person there yeah and you stay in this position but actually working out what you're best at and doing yeah. more of what you're best at yeah most people get stuck on that don't they they do and i mean if you found a business you're not usually going to be a conservative strategic person you're going to be a little bit crazy a risk taker mm. you're going to be me or people like me mm. i'm very clear on where my strengths are where my weaknesses are but mm. most people are going to be thinking well, if I'm not CEO, I potentially lose control, and you know, yeah. there's there's definitely ego as well. There's a hundred percent ego. I mean, no one wants to be the CEO and then suddenly be called a president or some shit like that. I don't care about that, and that's the honest to god truth because it doesn't matter. And the, what were the best bits about that? Yeah, PE journey with ECI professional board mm. when i think about the eci journey which was three years and then the bc partners journey they were very different journeys but eci were the first time we had external oversight from a diligence point of view financial point of view you know and, and then we say we also were then on not a treadmill but we were on a defined timeline of right here's where we are now now we make a plan for the next three years and we deliver in that plan and we do it an exit right so i really like that i really liked having something to shoot for there was an end in sight there was a clear target in sight also i won't say the flames were under our arses but eci were a great investor they were very compatible with us culturally and didn't get too involved in too much other than that we made one acquisition ironically of holiday autos (laughs) during their tenure and we disagreed on that we were a B2B business scaling with B2B margins and you had the growth that we were able to get by adding airlines, adding airlines. And we were buying, pretty much, I won't call it dog of a company, we were buying an ex-growth company and we were strapping on EBITDA, which looks really nice, you know, by in your three-year window. But it was very difficult business to grow. So we were diluting our growth mm. ability and that was challenging, but... It's still, you know, it was, it was a great marriage and great team. And similarly with BC then, totally different animal. BC, much bigger fund, a much bigger network. They had 
you know, access to ex-Amazon guys and data science consultancies. And for me and Mike, we were thinking we can do much more with this business, but we need help. They found some consultancies that blew my mind, particularly in the machine learning yeah. stuff that we apply to our pricing systems. You'd never learn that on your own. And that's where you need the really big, the, the big help from the PE guys. And then uh, you stepped away yeah. during the BC ownership from the front line, didn't you? So- I won't say that I was... Bored is not the right word, right? But definitely at the limits of excitement for what it was. You know, we'd we'd all done a great job. The business was well set up. We were 600, 650 people. And I I just felt that I wanted to build something else. And, And I was doing a lot of angel investing and I was getting involved in all these different things, spread myself very thin. And what I really wanted to do was go back to building something. I just wanted to build from the start and do the math, write the code, build the team. That's what I'm good at. I'm good at, at the idea, the build, the startup, and the, the take into kind of what I call escape velocity. My succession plan was first hire somebody that could replace me, then move up to the board, then move out, which is what I did. I had already started MANA, or pretty much the ideation of it. And then when COVID happened, that was the trigger for really a big downturn for the whole travel industry. And that was the time for me to make it just a go for it and, and go full time to MANA. The beauty about travel is it's got you know, amazing working capital when it's growing, but when it's shrinking, it's um, horrible sting in the tail. And yeah, I know you lost money through that. Does it drive you indirectly in any way? Do you think? No, you know, I'm, I was wiped out by COVID. My, my holding in car trawler was wiped out. See, I got a zero result. But I'm fortunate that I had done pretty well from the two previous stakes. But it yeah. was a horrible couple of months. But, you know, you have to be philosophical. I could have stayed and, you know, the new owners, Towerbrook, were great, you know, very gracious and, you know, wanted me to stay and keep doing what I did. But I just felt, look, that I flogged this horse enough now and yeah. it's time to do something else. And do you think if it wasn't for that, you would have lent into Manor so much? Yeah, good question. I 100% would have lent into MANA. I would have probably stayed on the car trawler board, though, and waited for BC partners to exit and done well out of that. Would it have changed? It would have changed a bit, right? I probably would have funded MANA a little bit longer myself. Yeah. 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 I probably would have stuck probably another five, maybe even 10 million more into MANA. And it would have been a mistake. And you would have kept control, but it would be slower. I'm not driven by keeping control. I I wouldn't say that. I'm not driven by maximizing the percentage that I own in this business. What I'm driven by is maximizing the chance of success. Because as we said at the start, it's binary, right? It's either going to be zero or gigantic. And if it's gigantic, I'm happy to take a minority stake in gigantic versus a majority stake in zero. So you've basically had... 30 odd years of tech growth. So how, how do you sustain that? Uh, you, you do things that are interesting. I was 49 when I started, man, I'm 52 and a half now. And I definitely questioned, do I have the energy to do this? Because it's 10 years, right? Yeah. No matter what, it's a decade. So I said, do I have a right to do this? Am I too old? And even if I wanted to, I shouldn't. We should let young people do this kind of thing. And then I said, you know, I actually do have the energy and this is, excites me. So you're right, though, but it's 30 plus years of taking risk, working hard, doing startups, the madness of growth. 
And I wouldn't change a single thing about it. The only thing I'd change, as I said, is I would have taken on investment in that first business, Eland. Yeah. You know, that was the, that was the biggest, probably and onlyest mistake that I made. Yeah. Big one anyway. I've made plenty of mistakes otherwise, but that was the biggest one that I would change. And you've often had a wing yeah. woman, wing man, as part of that journey. Yeah. This time I don't. And I don't like it. It's actually... <laughs> lonely. Honestly, it is lonely. Yeah. I would love to have a wing man, woman, wing person. You know, I have some great people on my team. I really do. Maybe it's my time. Maybe it's the fact that I have to call myself CEO that now I have to act more responsibly, you know. But, yeah. you know, like when I was with Mike, great news and bad news we shared together. Yeah. But I did like the team now that I have, I've built a pretty strong leadership team, exec team. But I am, you know, the lonely CEO. It is not a cliche. <laughs> it's It's true. Sure. I would recommend get a co-founder, but you know, too late for me now. And so, uh, what would be your advice for a founder or an entrepreneur embarking on private equity for the first time? Oh, do it! But my advice is spend a lot of time getting your advisors right. So we got lucky the first time. We used advisors called Torch Partners, and they were brilliant. And then we used you guys, PwC, for the second time. And again, the advisors were critical. So when you're going in to do PE, it's important that your advisors help you, you know, kind of steer you so that you understand and you can translate what this really means. If you have a business that's a healthy business that has potential, you'd be wrong to do it on your own, as I did the first time. You bring on PE, not just to get access to the capital and maybe take a few quid off the table. You, that's not how you bring in PE. You bring in PE to strengthen you and to head off disaster along the way. And they become, I think, value add to your business along the side. That For, for me, anyway, they strengthen you and they increase your chances of the scale that you wouldn't have on your own. And the most important qualities, you think, for a founder, entrepreneur? PE different than VC. Mm. My biggest weakness is I don't have that finance background. It's a huge weakness, right? And I think if you're dealing with PE, you need to have a strong CFO or else mm. you need to be that tight because, as you well know, it's a very disciplined space. And then in general, my best advice for founders, particularly young ones, is build networks. Networks are everything. And, and all of the good things that have happened to me, both in hiring and in opportunities, in, in customers, in everything. It's been because of the network that I've had, that I've been growing my whole life. So for founders, don't be insular. Be always out there for no particular reason, meeting and talking to new people. And then the other thing on the hiring front, which is the hardest part of getting things right in, in when you start a business, is I'm always sizing them up to see how at some point may I work with this person? How can they not be useful to me? I'm always meeting new people and I'm, I always come away, you know, making notes. This sounds spooky, but I do take notes. Yeah. You know, I, I note all these people and I can't. I categorize them. Yeah. And when I need someone on batteries, if I need someone on supercapacitors, or if I need someone on whatever it is, I can generally look to you know my, my network and get straight there. And that's because I constantly build a network. So my advice to the entrepreneurs is never stop doing that. Even if you think you don't need it, there's always yeah. something good around the corner. Like curiosity. Yeah. And um, most inspiring person to you? Oh, God. So that's a tricky one because there's a lot of a lot of bullshit, right? So I have yeah. to say it has to be Elon Musk, not because of why most people think. 
And the reason he's most inspiring is because he went through the absolute ringer and the whole world, other than his fan club, was riding him off. Mm. In Silicon Valley, everyone wanted him to fail. So the resilience of the guy and the sheer determination and level of personal risk that he took is phenomenal. And is there a book you currently like or turn to regularly? So, I mean, they're, they're all similar. Like, obviously, the best business book I've ever read is Shoe Dog, The Nike Story. Oh, yeah. Also, a great recent read and a sobering one for a lot of people is The Cult of We, mm. which is the book about the Adam Newman. We keep yeah. yeah, We Work. That is a great read. I also, I throw Super Pumped into that category as well, the story of Uber. Okay, yeah. Bobby, you've been a legend. I've loved it. Yeah, thanks very much. I, I really enjoyed it, Guy. What a total one-off Bobby is. 35 years of tech-driven frontier founder entrepreneurialism, which is insane in itself, but his energy is still sky high and I find that deeply infectious. Can you imagine what he was like when he was 18? That amazing mix of deep passion and belief around the mission, combined with the insatiable curiosity, which reminds me very much of Maverick from Top Gun. You get sucked in and you want to be his wingman. Maybe that's his secret sauce, being such an evangelical leader. I reckon Bobby could sell ice to Eskimos. But what he's got to go along with all that, though, is this self-awareness and the acknowledgement of not only what he's good at, but more importantly, what he's not good at and his need to delegate. When founders recognise and acknowledge that, that's when they begin to unlock significant amounts of value. If you enjoyed listening to that conversation and want to hear more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd love you to rate and review this episode and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to future episodes. You can find out more on tenzing.pe on Twitter, LinkedIn or on Instagram. Bye for now.